This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to Earthwise, environment and peace with justice interviews on Plains FM 96.9. Welcome to Earthwise. I'm Lois Griffiths. As we're approaching the end of the year, this should be a time to remember and reflect on what has happened during this last year in hope that there are lessons that can be learned that can help us all strive to make it a better world for all of humanity. Well, an important lesson we should have learned is that we, all of humanity, are in this together. This year has led to an awareness that global climate conditions affect every part of the planet. And the last year, too, has forced us to realize that COVID-19 pandemic is, glo is of global concern. You can hardly avoid that. If poor countries can't receive vaccines, there will be unpleasant consequences spreading everywhere. You're all right, Lois. It's important to remember, and let's hope remembering will make us wiser. Make us wiser, and conversely, Forgetting can be dangerous and cruel, too. I'm thinking, Martin, of the May 2021 bombing attacks on Gaza by Israeli forces. Israeli bombers targeted residences, hospitals, the COVID-19 testing center, knowing that Gaza was already poorly prepared to cope with COVID-19. Yeah, this atrocity should not be forgotten, but I fear it has. So that's why Lois and I have decided that today's program should be a repeat of the July 19 interview that we recorded with Dr. Alice Rothschild from America. We're very, we felt very grateful to be able to talk with Alice. She's a retired American obstetrician gynecologist as well as a social justice activist. She closely follows the situation in Israel, West Bank and Gaza and shares her concerns. And Alice is an active with Jewish Voices for Peace as a member of the JVP Health Advisory Council. She's on the board of the Gaza Mental Health Foundation. So let's listen now to last July's interview with Dr. Alice Rothschild. Welcome to Earthwise, Dr. Alice Rothschild. Well, thank you very much for that very nice introduction. Well, Alice, on your website, are the words since 1997, I'm quoting, she has focused much of her energy on understanding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. What led you to take such a strong interest in what's happening in that part of the world? Well, I grew up in a very uh, traditional Zionist family. Uh, my grandparents were on the, my maternal side were Orthodox Jews. Um, so I had you know, immigrant family living in uh, Brooklyn, New York. Um, and uh, I went to Hebrew school for six years and had a bat mitzvah. And my family went to Israel in, uh, when I was 14. And it was this magical, wonderful homeland we went back to. Um, so that's where I started. So I'm very much like Jews who grew up in my generation. Um, and then, you know, I'm a child of the 60s. So I went to college uh, during the uh, uprising against the Vietnam War and just became a more politically conscious person. Uh, and then I went to medical school and um, dif discovered up close and personal the issue of sexism, uh, being one of the few women in my class, and um, ultimately uh, went into OBGYN basically as a reaction 
to my attendings rather than as someone who identified with them. So again, I got involved with healthcare reform and feminism and reproductive rights and looking at healthcare in the political context in which it occurs because you can't really separate health from social and economic and political things. And so I was cooking along and I knew that I had to re-examine my early love of Israel, but I couldn't figure out a way to do it because at that point, anytime I would mention Israel or Palestine or something like that, basically everybody would start yelling at each other. So that went on for a while until I just got too much of a uncomfortable, discordant feeling in myself that I that as a Jewish American, I really had to think this one out. Um, and I was involved with a secular uh, Jewish organization called Workmen's Circle. It's now called Workers' Circle. And uh, it was uh, basically um, uh, a, a way to have uh, a Sunday school and rituals that were not religious, but would be a way to share our history and culture with our children. And so a group of us uh, got together one Yom Kippur and said, you know, we really need to figure this out. And so um, it turned out that was the year of the Israel 50th anniversary celebration, and it was going to be a big, you know, rah-rah Israel, Israeli bands playing, everybody having face painting and waving Israeli flags kind of mm-hmm. event. And we had the crazy idea of organizing a peace forum with Palestinians and lefty Israelis, and we didn't really know what we were thinking of, but we were going to propose this thing, and then they would obviously reject it, and then we would have a march. And that was our entire plan. And much to their credit, this was a mainstream Jewish group, they accepted it. And then we were like, oh my God, we don't know anything, we better figure this out. So we started meeting uh, with Palestinians in the Boston area, with uh, lefty Israelis, with um, progressive rabbis, with a whole bunch of people that were not the kind of people that I usually ran into, and got a very, very rapid education. Um, And then we put on this conference, and, you know, 200 people came, and it was basically quite successful. And we had, you know, a booth for kids to look at pictures of Palestinian children and Israeli children and paint both their flags and all this kind of stuff. So it was really exciting to do this. And we thought, we should learn more about this and we should educate our community. And we had all these big ideas. Um, So we started meeting and developing ideas and listening and listening and listening and learning. And gradually that evolved to a variety of different grassroots organizations that I've been involved with over time. But that's how it all started. Mm. Well... (laughs) Let's get on to Palestine today. I see you're with the Gaza Mental Health Foundation. I'm thinking always about the children, what they go through. They're they're all traumatized, aren't they? Well, um, there was just a study that came out that estimated that 90% of the children in Gaza have post-traumatic stress disorder. And you really have to ask if there is that kind of diagnosis in Gaza because the trauma is really never post. Mm. Um, you know, kids have, and this is true of adults as well, they have repeated episodes of trauma related to bombing and assaults and home invasions and all those kinds of things that really uh, disrupt a person's mental health as well as their physical health. Um, so it's a huge, huge problem in Gaza. And what we see is a huge epidemic in bedwetting amongst children, which is a sign of their kind of distress uh, and a lot of depression, anxiety, uh, you know, those kind of symptoms. Um, and so that's very, very prevalent in Gaza, uh, particularly amongst the children. And it's a very young population. Uh, you know, I don't have the number in my head, but it's something like half of the population is under 18. It's that kind of numbers. So it's a young 
traumatized population that is repeatedly traumatized. Have you yourself managed to get into Gaza or just Israel itself? So I've been to Gaza three times. Um, and so I have had the opportunity to you know, bear witness in up close and personal and to uh, do uh, interviews with a wide variety of people and, you know, regular people and teachers and people who are social workers and doctors and psychologists and all that kind of thing. And also uh, to do uh, what I call uh, women's empowerment workshops. So uh, working with different women's groups and doing sessions with women about their bodies and you know, their health. And uh, it's uh, so I had a really stunning and amazing experience and also going into people's homes and having dinner and you know, just getting to know folks. So um, I have I have had that very uh, important experience and I and I hope to go back if I ever travel again. <laughs> just just thinking of the children, I think about them in the middle of the night sometimes. Uh, it is going to affect them for the rest of their lives, isn't it? They, they see they see people being killed and schoolmates having been killed? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that that um, children that undergo extreme trauma, um, that it does affect both their emotional health and their cognitive development. Um, the thing about uh, folks in Gaza is that even though all of that is going on, it's also an incredibly resilient society because people have had to be resilient and because it's a very uh, strongly family-oriented uh, society and you know, the, the mothers in Gaza are sort of pillars of strength who, you know, have a huge amount of suffering themselves. Uh, but it's a much more um, uh, resilient and uh, coherent uh, society than you would know from Western media. Um, on the other hand, you know, people have used up a lot of their coping strategies. I mean, I can remember um, interviewing uh, the executive director of the Gaza Community Mental Health Program, and he was talking about how in the 2014 war, that people had come to the end of their ability to cope. They had no more strategies left. There was no safe place. Mm. It was just terrifying. And the problem is that even when the war stops, um, you know, there's still Israeli drones overhead all the time and repeated assaults and attacks. And, you know, that all goes on whether or not we see it in our reporting. Um, and then when something uh, happens again, like the recent assault, I think in May, uh, it re-stimulates all the old trauma. So people who haven't been severely traumatized get traumatized, and people who have from previous wars get re-stimulated. So um, what he sees is, you know, a recurrence of all the symptoms and the panic and the jumpiness and the nightmares and the bedwetting. Um, even when people who have, have had, you know, therapy and group therapy and art therapy and all the things to help people get better, um, it all erupts again. So that's what I think that you basically see. Well, all that the uh, people of God have gone through seems for years and years. But now there's COVID-19. We decided to try to contact you after reading an article you wrote in Mondevice.net in mm -hmm. May mm -hmm. in May this year called The Super Spreader Assault on Gaza. Let's spell it out. What do you mean by super spreader? When the pandemic started a year ago, March, I think, um, the first thing I noticed was that I couldn't figure out what was going on in the ter in the occupied territory. So um, I and some other folks at Jewish Voice for Peace Health Advisory Council uh, decided that we would track the COVID-19 pandemic 
and we've started doing a weekly uh, search, literature search of the English literature, um, trying to figure out what's the data and also what's the data in Israel because everything goes together there. And so, you know, and I thought, oh, we'll do this a couple of months and then it'll pass, right? Um, so we're still doing it. And so I have followed the uh, pandemic very, very closely. So initially, um, the health ministry in Gaza was fully aware that there was no way that their healthcare system could cope with a massive amount of very sick people. Um, the healthcare system has been battered repeatedly, bombed, destroyed, clinics mm, destroyed, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Uh, because of all the limitations from the siege, um, there's a tremendous lack of essential medications and respirators and just basic stuff. Plus, the staff is pretty burnt out. People have a lot of trouble getting further training because they can't leave the strip and what is available for them is fairly limited. And then with the Great March of Return, which was a weekly, mostly nonviolent protest, um, there was a huge amount of injuries, particularly severe orthopedic injuries because the Israeli snipers would aim at the legs of the young men who were demonstrating. So they were, the, the, the ministry was very aware that they couldn't handle a massive um, amount of sick people. So they uh, set in place some very, very strict public health guidelines. And they were very, very good at it. There were months and months and months where there were almost no uh, cases of COVID in Gaza. And then mm. at some point, uh, community spread happened. And so at that point, you know, there was still a tremendous push to do public health maneuvers and try to keep people quarantined and all the things that they were doing. But the whole thing kind of broke down. And so what we have seen is that First of all, the reporting from Gaza compared to, let's say, the reporting from Israel is ridiculously small because no one cares and no one pays attention except for some international agencies, the Ministry of Health and some, you know, activist organizations. And so what happened during the war, or I don't want to call it a war because that implies two armies facing each other. Uh, what happened during the assault, the most recent assault, is that there were tens of thousands of people who fled their homes, who uh stayed in um, UN schools, who uh, moved in with their relatives. So you had a large number of people clumping together for safety without the ability to social distance. And there was also a tremendous lack of water. So you can't mm. wash your hands if there's no water. And besides, 90% of the water isn't particularly clean anyway. So it was sort of um, a setup for the spread of the pandemic. Um, then on top of that, uh, the Israelis closed the uh, perimeter of Gaza. And so no vaccines came in for a while during the assault. And then they also uh, damaged the only testing center in Gaza for COVID-19. So the ability to actually do the test was uh, stopped. So the whole thing just ground to a halt. And so after the assault, they started getting the pandemic work back in order. But they had, you know, they were sort of set back again. You know, this is the story of Gaza. Every time they take a few steps forward, they get bombed back to the Middle Ages. So what we see now is that there is still an enormous lack of vaccine. I think something like maybe 7% or something in that order of magnitude of Palestinians in the territories have been vaccinated. And I think there are many more that are in the West Bank than in Gaza. 90% of the documented cases now are in Gaza. And they're not doing community testing. Um, from what I can tell, uh, the testing is only done on people who are hospitalized with symptoms who are going to be positive because they are hospitalized with symptoms. So the the screening of the community, knowing where the, the infection is, understanding the extent of the pandemic, it's just not 
being documented. But we know from our experience with epidemiology that it has to be spreading because the situation was set up to make it spread from the assault. Um, Now, I think that because the uh, population is so young and young people tend not to be that sick, you know, the hospitals aren't getting flooded because it's probably mostly young people who are sick. But I have no data to back this because there's no testing to create the data so that you could understand the extent of the pandemic. So that's what I mean by the fact that the 11-day assault was basically created a super spreader event for the people living in Gaza. The point I've been trying to make when I talk to people is that the Israelis have are know exactly what they're doing, don't they? They're very skilled at knowing where, where to aim missiles. Yeah, I mean... If you look at um, the reports from all the assaults that we see, you know, Israel claims it has very super-duper missiles that know exactly where they're going and they know where their aim is and they warn people and they have this whole mythology about how um, targeted they are. Um, And I think to some extent that is absolutely true. On the other hand, officials in the Israeli government have said that basically Everyone in Gaza is guilty until proven otherwise, so that civilians are considered a military target. They claim without a huge amount of evidence that, you know, Hamas is hiding amongst the population. And here is you know one of the world's most crowded places in the world. And so you don't have to hide to be amongst the population. And I always like to point out that the Israeli military has an installation in Tel Aviv, which could be called hiding amongst the population. So I do think that there is, a, a you know, if you look at statements, a public declaration by Israel that they're going to target civilians, even though they deny they do this, and that they're going to, when you look at what gets bombed, a lot of it is civilian infrastructure. So the, the sort of, I don't want even to call it a foreign policy, but it sort of is their foreign policy, is to just keep Gaza as crippled as possible, not to let it starve. I mean, there was some guy, I think Wineglass had said, you know, we're keeping them on a diet, and they calculated exactly how many calories they needed to allow into Gaza so that people wouldn't starve to death, but they're not flourishing. So there is that sort of very cynical lack of concern for the health and well-being of people living in Gaza, and also a complete lack of understanding that if you squeeze people and crush them and bomb them and kill them, that they're going to be mad at you, (laughs) and that this isn't the way to win friends and influence people, you know, and that if you really wanted to make peace with the people in Gaza, you would lift the siege, you would allow economic development, you would let people come and go. I mean, they want to be treated like human beings, and the Israelis are very clear that they're not going to allow that to happen. The thing that's going on on top of this that makes it so crazy is that there's this huge conflict between Hamas and Fatah. And, you know, the the Palestinian Authority and Fatah have basically become sort of the arm of the Israeli security in the West Bank. So they're not a good actor in this. And Hamas has a lot of issues as well. I mean, Hamas can be very positive in terms of social service and universities and support for the population. And they can also do horrific things involved with civilian, uh, you know, bombings and things like that. So the leadership has really abandoned the people in terms of moving anything forward. But it's all in the context of an incredibly oppressive siege and occupation that has to be deliberate because it's a policy. It's how 
the Israelis do their military and what they allow in and who they allow out. I mean, if you have cancer in Gaza and if you need radiation therapy, they won't allow radiation therapy into Gaza, which basically means that, for instance, if a woman gets breast cancer, she's at very high risk of having a total mastectomy rather than, you know, having her whole breast and lymph nodes removed rather than just a, a lump removed and some radiation because there's no radiation. And if a woman needs, wants to get radiation, she has to go to East Jerusalem to one of the teaching hospitals, you know, high-level hospitals there, or it takes them so long to get a medical permit that by the time they get it, they're half dead anyway, or they get the medical permit for the first procedure, but then they won't allow them to go back. Or, you know, I mean, it's just really Kafka-esque when you look at uh, the way the Israelis have weaponized the denial of health care to the people in Gaza. You're listening to Earthwise, broadcasting in Christchurch on Plains FM 96.9, in Hamilton on Free FM, and in Waikanae on Coast Access Radio. Today's guest is Dr. Alice Rothschild, and we're discussing the situation in Gaza. You have so much to offer. We actually read an article by that you've written for the Seattle Times, Palestinian Oppression and Despair in Stark Relief in Netanyahu's War. I'm wondering about the paper itself. Seattle Times, is it locally owned? Does this sort of article get to the other media? So I honestly uh, don't know who owns Seattle Times. You know, I, I moved to Seattle around four years ago. You know, I, it's, the, it's the paper of the city. It's a big paper. It's like the, Glo- the Boston Globe. It's not as big as the New York Times, obviously, but it's, you know, it's the main paper for Seattle. And it's, a, you know, the mainstream main paper, I think, with a sort of progressive bent. I have had a very interesting relationship with the Seattle Times. I I was um, included in an anthology that was examining Zionism and our personal transformations around Zionism. And so I was in a, a, a reading at a prominent uh, bookstore in Seattle. And I was actually contacted by the Seattle Times, and they asked me if I would write an op-ed about Zionism. And I nearly fell over because no one... You know, no mainstream newspaper calls me and asks me to write an article about my turning away from Zionism. So um, I developed a relationship with this really uh, wonderful editor there. And he actually, when I wrote it, I thought they'll never publish it. And they published it. Um, And, you know, everybody lived and they didn't die from the pushback or whatever happened to them. And then I said, you know, I'd really love to write op-eds for the Seattle Times. And he actually said he would consider one every three months. You know, so I send him one almost every three months and he takes some of them. He doesn't take others. But I have this sort of in with him. So I think I'm considered the, you know, the outlier uh, reporter. Uh, And, you know, they don't pay me, God forbid, or anything like that. I'm a guest reporter. But they will on occasionally take my op-eds and I have to figure out ways to pitch them. You know, I don't fully understand why this happens and I don't really know who owns them. But clearly there's some wiggle room in the editorial department that, makes this all possible. Well, Alice, our time is almost up. I just wanted to make the point, I feel if what you have to say got across to the public, the whole public and people in power and just the general public, things would change, wouldn't they? You know, I would love to think this. And first of all, it's not just what I'm saying. There are enormous number of voices, particularly Palestinian voices, speaking out about the realities in Palestine. And there are organizations like Jewish Voice of Peace, which is primarily Jewish voices, also speaking out in a similar uh, voice. Um, 
there is the Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S. that has basically endorsed Palestinian mm-hmm. solidarity. That's good. So these, these um, voices are coming from all different places. And we see even in our U.S. Congress, which until, you know, I mean, 20 years ago, it was impossible to get anyone to listen to you. And now we have, you know, a Palestinian representative. We have people talking about passing a bill that says that the U.S. shouldn't give money that will result in killing and torturing children, which shouldn't be controversial, but is. So conversations are happening in Congress that I could never believe would happen. So I think that there is an opening in the conversation, but there is also a tremendous amount of entrenched pushback that we see here. And, you know, you see it all over the world, obviously. I'm not convinced that people knowing something makes them change. I mean, look at, if you listen to, to much of the reporting, you know, COVID-19 is a real pandemic. It actually kills you if you're old and have illnesses. You know, vaccinations actually help. And yet, the population refuses to get vaccinated. So it's not that knowledge empowers people 100%, but I think it beats ignorance. And one of the things I see in the Jewish community, which for decades, you know, stood with Israel, right or wrong, no daylight between us, yada, 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 is that the, the, the older generations uh, still stand with Israel, uh, largely, but their children are much more ambivalent and often much more sympathetic to hearing Palestinian narratives and being sympathetic to narratives. And the reason for that is that you know, the Jewish community traditionally, except for people like, you know, Adelson and those kind of people, has been progressive, has supported civil rights, has supported the women's movement and the labor movement, and all those kind of things. That's what Jews were famous for. And so they come along spouting the stuff. And then when it comes to Israel, kind of drop off the cliff and say, well, that's different. That's special. And their kids say, no way. You know, if if Black Lives Matter is a fight for racial justice here, then why can't Palestinians have a fight for racial justice? So I think that younger generations are really changing the and, and are in much more solidarity with Palestine if they're paying attention. I mean, a lot of people aren't paying attention. Well, Alice, it's wonderful talking to you. I'm sorry I have to say our time is up, but um, I just, ah, okay. just feel that what you have is so important and uh, expressed so well. Uh, we must get the message out, and things have got to change now. It's people are dying all the time. It's I keep thinking of the right. children. That's what I keep telling people. Well, think about the children. You know, I, I suggest people can um, check out my website, alicerothschild.com, and see many of my writings and things if they're more interested, and also Jewish Voice for Peace. Well, wonderful talking right. to you, Alice Rothschild, and uh, I admire so well, much what you, you do. Well, Martin, it was such a good idea to listen again to Dr. Rothschild, a wonderful woman. I admire her so much, and I'm sure she would join us in hoping, wishing, that next year we'll see a global humanity strive to stabilize the global climate system, provide good health care for everyone, everywhere, and no more warfare. If only. Meanwhile, from us at Earthwise, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>